0: Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. The very best of last week's rugby coaching webinars and podcasts reviewed by host Phil Flewellyn and his special guests.
1: Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for Season 2. I hope you're as excited as I am to delve back into the world of sports coaching and rugby. As always, I'm delighted to have another three excellent individuals join me this week. So, gents, if you'd like to introduce yourselves, where you're from and your current role. Uh,
2: good evening, Phil. Uh, I'm John Lorne. I hail from and still live in Yorkshire, up in the Yorkshire Dales. Um, my current role is Head of Game Development at the Rugby Football Union.
0: Hi Phil, hi everyone, I'm Dusty Miller. Uh, I am a Performance Support Mentor at the English Institute of Sport and I currently live in and around the Cotswolds, which is a lovely part of the world.
3: Living Phil, uh, I'm John Whitteson, currently residing in Chesterfield, famous for the Crooked Spire and uh, I'm currently a match official developer for the Rugby Football Union.
1: Wonderful. Gents, absolute pleasure to have you all on. Thank you for giving up your time. Um, as I said to uh, to Widow earlier in the week when we sport I'm, I describe you as connoisseurs of rugby, so uh, I've had to get my little grey cells ready for uh, ready for this one, definitely. Um, you'll be delighted to know the terrible jokes have gone, but before we get started, just a reminder to check out the blurb for links to all the content we discuss and recommendations to other high-quality podcasts. We will get straight into things. So, Lorne, we're coming to you. What uh, What were you looking at?
2: yeah so a combination of two phil so i've been uh plowing through a, a book uh the oval world uh global history of rugby which is uh been authored by professor tony collins and also he does a podcast series called rugby reloaded um, um which is you know between 10 and 40 minute episodes which looks at rugby how it um how it's grown up across the globe, um, different parts of the game, seminal moments in the game across the globe. Um, So just try to, I suppose, buff up on the history of the game, really. Um, um, Yeah, and the the read, I must recommend the read. It's it's a great book if you want to find out a little bit about where the game emerged from. Um, um, And I suppose I should explain the the rationale for for diving into it, really. I've worked at the RFU for 19 years now and um, as we were joking before we came on it, it's not been without its challenges and sometimes there are, there are changes uh, that take place and m- more recently I've become a little bit closer to some of the, the decision making that's going on at the higher levels of the game and, and it, it just prompted my curiosity really to try and uncover um, what what are the traditions of our sport? What's its history? that maybe informs some of the thinking and some of the decision decisions that we are making now? Um, so that's why I dug into this to this book really a little bit. Um, I guess some of the some of my key learning at the moment would be, you know, we we are a very traditional sport. If you look at the history of the sport, um, um, and I think that sometimes makes us a little bit cautious when it comes to change. You know, we we inch forward rather than taking big steps Um, and I'm starting to question you know in myself more than anything not necessarily about anybody else or any other any other part of the game you know does the does does that tradition and that history does it stifle my own creativity you know am I being bold enough in terms of how I how how I lead and how I work with my colleagues Um, so that's that's a key I suppose a key piece of learning um, I've taken out of it and I suppose a couple of other interesting bits and pieces. You know, the I guess the, the the promoted the promoted story of the game or narrative of the game is that it was it was emerged from the playing fields of Rugby School. Um, what this book has opened up to me a little bit is that it actually probably emerged out of you know working class rural life. And, you know, the old village games that were played on Shrove Tuesday, for example, where the uppers and downers would play against each other or two villages at the side of a river or a stream. and So I think that's quite interesting in terms of where the, where the sport grew out of. Um, and I guess the other bit then that, that I'm starting to think about, uh, what I'm picking up from, from, from reading this book is um, rugby in some ways has always had a difficult relationship with money and finance. Um, when that goes back to day one, really, which I think is quite interesting. Um, and when you look, when you actually look at where the game may have emerged from, it actually should go back to community pride and a sense of representing your community and and the way you represent it is unique to the characteristics of that community. Um, and I think sometimes that that maybe money and uh, league position can sometimes become a bit of a warped measure of success for too many people involved in the sport. When actually, you know building on that that community those community traits or characteristics that can give you a performance advantage as much as money can and i include that all the way down from top to bottom so yeah so i'll I'll probably stop there at the moment but you know some of those key learnings for me is about how how the traditions of the game are maybe impacting on impacting on me and, and my ability to perform my role to the best of my ability really
1: Brilliant, love that. First question for you: talking about, I guess, the yeah, the involvement of money and finance within the game, and the, maybe the rush to go professional. I know there's a couple of articles that came out kind of around the anniversary and talking around there was meant there was going to be a breakaway league, and suddenly you know the kind of the game got together and just said, okay, we need to we need to push forward with this. If you had been in a leadership role chief exec whatever chairman of the rfu at the time what what kind of way would you have steered the game with a view of central contracting or prem clubs i appreciate hindsight is a wonderful thing but where where would you kind of if you had that moment where would do you think you'd take the game
2: good question you are talking through hindsight aren't you yeah i guess i guess my immediate reaction but it it may be based on on 2020 vision looking back would be that central contracts you know, may have been a better thing back in the day, um, but equally, you know, I think if you look at the maybe the makeup of our World Cup winning side back in two thousand and three, I think that in many ways was drawn out of the characteristics of the of the people that played and how they'd learnt those characteristics and and playing traits through their through their club rugby, you know. So you know, you know the iron fist in iron club approach of um, of Leicester, for example, you know. Uh, the scrummaging of Gloucester. Um, I think you. I think you maybe have. But maybe going back to it, maybe we just find a slightly better balance. You know, so more of a partnership in terms of. Um, yes, we need to keep the players in the clubs, and and clubs are really important. But maybe we can meet meet somewhere in a halfway house. You know, more of a shared contract model, perhaps something like that. Uh, but yeah, that's that's looking through the those uh, those rose-tinted 2020 spectacles, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and, I, and I, I genuinely don't think there's a right answer. Having worked with the RFU and you look at a lot of social media and comments around some of the stuff they do and there's a lot of criticism as much as they want Ireland to do well. They still want their best players playing in, you know, Pro 14 games for, for the provinces. And when Johnny Sexton plays, I don't know, five or six of those games across the season, they're frustrated at that. So I, and I think that's as as bad as the overplaying issue we probably got with some of the pros. So yeah, I, I don't I don't think there's a, a perfect model. We could probably all look at other people and go, well there's nice things they do and they, you know, they get to it maybe affords them a better opportunity, but I'm I'm not sure there's a, a definitive, which is why it's always a fascinating question and, and one actually we don't get to maybe talk about as much as we'd like. So Dusty, John, where where would you go with that? What are your thoughts?
3: Well one for me though was um a society has changed and, you know, I picked up on what John was saying around cultural identity. So, um, you know, our, have our clubs uh, still got those strong links to their their own demographic in terms of their own cultural identity? So, uh, for argument's sake, uh, the North could have been heavy, heavy industry, uh, whole um, trawlers, uh, fishing industry, you know. Have we have we lost the can we resurrect that uh, association with our past history to get that cultural identity within our clubs again? I guess that's what uh, I'm ultimately thinking, Phil.
1: How, how would we go with that? Open question. What what are our thoughts? How do we how do we re-establish that?
2: I'll I'll jump in there. I, I think um, sort of on the theme of history, I think you know, um, you sometimes got to look back and and you know involve in the, in the example that John's talking about, you know, in terms of community clubs, talk to the people who came before you, understand, you know, what were the values that they that they inherited from the people before them. Because generally speaking, you know, there's good traditions and there's bad traditions and you want to bring forward the good traditions, don't you? The good values, you know, the the good examples of community spirit and community characteristics. And and you probably, as a coach, and we're talking about coaching now, you need to be able to capture those and, and bring them forward and, and use those to engage today's players and even
1: tomorrow's players do we think that is a key element of i guess everybody involved in the club but having maybe that balance of of older players that have come through the system and then combining that you know we we talk about um you know retention a huge amount we talk about transition a lot from colts into seniors and that that kind of crossover do we think maybe in a larger portion of the community game that's stopped happening that people you know you'd have had a first team player then go and play for the seconds or the thirds as they got older now a lot of those players would just stop so has that opportunity for the younger players coming through to mix with those people maybe been reduced do we think
0: yeah i think i think it has been reduced um what, what i would what i would say is the 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 social offer that's available for everybody is so much more and so vast there is there is a raft of opportunities for people to take and so the transient nature of clubs now and people going through the clubs isn't as it used to be where you grew up inside your club and stayed with your club and so that that's that's a real challenge and so that sense of belonging and purpose they get through the the youth and minis as they come through um once they start to experience life outside of the village or the town, they then, you know, go somewhere else to get enjoyment. And I think that challenges us as well.
1: How, how do you think we overcome that?
0: It's a, it's a good question. Uh, and I think if I, if I could find it and overcome it and bottle it and sell it, I'd be a very rich man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and it's certainly something that we in rugby have been trying to crack for, well, certainly all of my involvement in uh, England rugby. Was, was that that was the how do we help our clubs be the best version of themselves and how do we keep our players keeping to come back to the club? Yeah. And so um, that's a challenge. It's a huge challenge. And I don't think we're going to knock that one out in, in the short term, that's for sure.
1: i go back to, Lornie, as you said at the start, the, the traditions. Are we bold enough? Do you think maybe that hampers... Some of those, so yeah, as Dusty said, you know, there's there's cross pitch sevens, there's sevens, there's tens, there's you know, there's just standard touch. There's so many other things that actually players can still do, but maybe aren't perceived as traditional rugby. And and if it's not three o'clock on a Saturday. Some people have still got a bit of an issue with it that well that's not it's not proper rugby or whatever. Do you, how how would you go about over kind of overcoming those attitudes and still promoting the game as a as a as a whole, but trying to just change some of that? Yeah, maybe frustration of some people that it's not fifteen aside on a, at three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon anymore.
2: Yeah, I'll try and tell uh, my point across with the story really. So it's really talking about my son who, who plays rugby and. I've Just noticed, been to watch him a few times, and he'd play. He plays allo rugby now and play at three o'clock on a Saturday. Then he'd effectively have a, have a drink and he'd say, Right, I'm going. And I, I would have stayed, you know, that it's three o'clock and then you're in, aren't you? That's it's all locked in for the evening. But it, it always meet up later on with the lads, and most of them, it wasn't just him, a few of them, they, you know, the go and then they go back out in the evening at eight, nine, ten o'clock at night. So I talked to him about it and I said, you know, what's that about? He says, well, I'm not really bothered about starting having an evening out at 4.30, 5 o'clock in an afternoon. He said, I've got other things to do. And then we meet up later on. And and it just got me thinking, you know, so I said to him, I said, so if the game kicked off at 7 o'clock on a Saturday night or 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock, would that?" He said, oh, yeah, I'd love that. That'd be great. That would allow me to do more in my day. Do my day, play at 8 o'clock in the night and then I'd go out. you know, and I don't I don't think we think like that enough, do we? we you know, we're thinking, at, as you say, three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And it worked for me, and it may have worked for you guys, but I'm, you know. And it still may work for some, but it, it might not quite, quite work for everybody, really. So, I just think we've got to be a bit bolder about trying things out like that.
1: Oh, yeah, I 100% agree. The The amount of frustration I used to have in some of the local National League games... And I mean, you're talking, they'd be within 45 minutes or an hour's travel. So it's not a lot. And you say, well, maybe we do a Friday night. And actually you you send, you know, five free tickets to every other local club and you get some of their guys down to enjoy themselves and all that sort of stuff. And you just met with this raft of, oh, well, well how would, you know, our lunch makes us lots of money. Well, how will we do that? Well, could you not do a barbecue? Or actually, if you had if you have 200 people for lunch, but you have a thousand people through the gate because it's a Friday night. Is, is there a difference financially and all this type of stuff? And I'd, yeah, I think you're dead right. And when you break it down, actually, if you're going to invent a sport, rugby's a pretty ridiculous sport. to to play a game, I need to find 29 other people and a referee to all turn up at the same place at the same time as, as com, you know, compared to going out and doing a triathlon or CrossFit or anything like that. Like, it, yeah, there's just huge challenges within that, isn't there? So it's, um, yeah, very, very interesting. Superb, um, gents. Any questions for for Lorney based off uh, what he was talking about?
0: I think uh, my my question, Lorney, would be, um, you, you know, you talk about traditions and the learning and the understanding and the growth of the game and its origins. If you could fast forward twenty five years, which of those traditions do you think would still be there? I'd like
2: to think. I'd like to think the, the really back to the basic ones for me, which is incredibly competitive on the field for every minute of every game in every position you know, somebody who played in the front row that's where i got my kicks literally <laughs> metaphorically um so i think i think you know massively competitive but i do think that that respect off the pitch has to be maintained and you know i'm, I'm a great believer and sometimes referees used to frustrate me but the referee for example should be applauded through the tunnel it's it, it's something that you do it's the right thing to do I think it's right that after a game you should go and have a pint or have anything with your with your opposite you know opposite player um so I think I'd, I'd hate to see those types of traditions go from from the game um because so I think they're really important another thing I'd like to see resurrected because I think it's slowly going out of the game especially in adult rugby and I think it's down to the length of the season I always well, I'm a firm believer that that touring is a wonderful way of bringing people together and having shared experiences. And especially where you go on, you might go, your first, seconds and thirds might go on tour somewhere. They were special events really. That they, 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 you know, That's back to that making memories piece. It's not about winning or losing. It's about making memories. It's about leaving somebody behind. It's about all the lunatic stuff that goes on on rugby tours. And I'd love to see those resurrected and. Still be in existence in twenty-five years' time, definitely.
0: I, I think it's. I think touring is a is a fantastic, fantastic opportunity to bond with your fellow players. Absolutely. Um, I'm quite. I'm quite excited as well about the way that the premier, premiership are having those back-to-back fixtures at the moment with midweek opportunities. I think that. I think that's something that we should. We could. We couldn't. Should explore further as well. I think that would help. Uh, people reengage, or a different audience re-engage with the game.
2: Yeah, and I, I must admit, I do like it when uh, when the, the rugby's on the TV and and the cameras stay on the players after the game's ended, and they are having a conversation. They are laughing and joking. You know, they they've left everything on the field, but then they're you know they're connecting with one another, and I think that's important. Because sometimes you get the image, you know, it, it's blood and thunder on the field, and it's blood and thunder off it as well. And you know, then they go for almost at separate sides of the ground, and uh, so I'm glad that the, if you like, the rest of us are getting a view, and yeah, these traditions do do matter at the top end of the game
1: as well. Great example of that is is a Twitter conversation. Um, I think it was Opta put out some stats around Marcus versus Anthony Watson. Be obviously Bath played them on on Monday, and just just stoked a bit of sibling rivalry and that sort of stuff, and. Maybe we need to make more of of that kind of thing. I think there's just something must be pretty special. It is always fun playing against siblings, anyway. But at the you know the the top top level, I think there's definitely a, a bit of a bit of ribbon that goes on there, which is great. So all good. Cool. We are going to move it on. So Dusty, I'm going to come over to you. What uh, what content were you looking at?
0: So I I looked at a, a a book called Shackleton's Way. It's about Shackleton. It's a story of of uh, his adventure and it's told through a story as well but um the, the interesting thing for me about it is is understanding what it takes to be able to lead people to do things they don't necessarily believe they can do and how you how you can coalesce around a shared vision so in this instance he's off to the antarctic um, and whilst whilst it's not um there was some there wasn't some success with the overall aim. He was certainly uh, a true leader of people and his, through the book, it tells you, it tells you the, the journey they went on, the trials and tribulations. And it also talks about teamship, um inspiring how to inspire other people from around you uh, and to, to support and learn and, and as you go through it, it talks about his path to leadership. Um, it talks about how to inspire and, and, and recruit an outstanding crew. And I see a lot of parallels with, with um, certainly within the environment that I'm working in. So we're currently looking at how teams perform together so in the high performance area. And so the understanding of the role of a leader versus Uh, consultative leadership with each other and so the book talks to that quite powerfully as well and so the parallels that I keep coming back to within this within the story is 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 quite stark for me when we're trying to build uh, teams within the Olympic system the Paralympic system to support the athletes to get them in the best possible position for their performance and I think it's fair to say that some of those cultures and previous historical cultures have been that this is what it takes to win around here and we can have poor behaviour in that. And so we're currently exploring the moral component of uh, high performance sport as well. So the book for me uh, is one that I've read on a number of occasions and I would commend it to anybody to have a good read of it. And certainly if you're in a role Or in a role of leader or if you're just curious about leadership and teamwork it's a great uh, some great references in it for you to to pull on and draw on in your own work.
3: Nice dust Um, you mentioned about uh, Shackleton's pathway to leadership was there anything that stood out for you um, around his pathway to leadership?
0: Yeah good question John so um, the thing that stood out for me the most was how he connected with his people and he was consistent with his people, and so in that position of leadership, it's it, his his ability to understand everything about the people that was working with him, and so he was very personal. He would ask, you know, he would he would be interested in not just them, not just them as the job of work, but also about their family and associations, and understands that diversity in thought is good for the team. He wanted divergent thinkers. He didn't want people that uh, reflected his own leadership style. It was more around diversity. Dusty, from your reading there,
2: what what could today's modern leaders learn from him? If there's two or three real takeaways, what could they learn from Shackleton?
0: For me, it is about knowing your people would be the first one, and, and get to know your people and really understand what makes them tick. Um, the other thing that, uh, that we could pull from him is his attention to detail and one of service to the people that he's working with so he would say that he was in service of them so although they were working for him and I think mm. if you can get to a place of leadership where you are and and you're working in service of your team your team go a hell of a long way for you and for each other so they would be the two pull throughs I think
2: I, I imagine you know often now we talk about we don't have enough time in some ways that was the pace of life slower then so getting you know getting to the pole on the ship takes a long time doesn't it you have yeah. time to get to know people i, I do sometimes think we, we i get we have to try and get to a point here to be as quick as we can but sometimes I, th- I think in you know we judge we judge coaches or we judge teams you know almost too quickly don't we we never give them the chance to to mature and bond and and, and find out find out a, lot, a little bit about each other and how they best operate you know so mm. some, some interesting learning from there
0: yeah so i I know, I know when i when i'm in this space of supporting uh coaches as a coach educator i will often spend the first three or four sessions just getting to know them and understanding them and so that you know and and they don't see me as somebody who who's going to tick the box to get them signed off they see me as a, as a resource and I you know and, and I and I I become another tool in their toolbox hopefully and so you know in, in this so whilst it's it's not a position of leadership w- what I'm trying to do is, is to show that my 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 approach to their development is to help them be the best version of themselves
1: how much do you think Going back to John's point, that is about doing your homework before you get into an environment. And I, I definitely know from experience, I've, I've gone into coaching roles in, in a number of sports where you've just kind of gone, yeah, I like the look of that, and I've not done my homework. I don't know what the people are like that I'm walking into meet. I don't know what the environment's like. Do you think that that comes down to everything around your preparation for an environment you potentially could end up in? Or is it how quickly you can get in amongst it and work that stuff out when you're there
0: in a way it's a difficult question to answer uh but my as you were talking and asking the questionnaire my thoughts were i would probably try not to assume anything and learn as i go into the environment and kind of work it out for myself i think i think that's that would be the because you get you know you do homework of course you do but I think you have to live and feel the experience. And so, so, you know, Shackleton would always talk about, you know, walking around the ship and getting to know everybody in their, in their place of work, as it were. Yes, it's on a ship and it's only a small ship, I get. But the point being is, if I you know, put it in today's environment, um, I think now, because of Zoom, people have got to know people in a different way. And so, therefore, the openness to share is there but it's in a different way than we used to the traditional way
1: is my thought there is the challenge actually one of my shipmates turns out to be a bit of a dick and isn't very good is that where my homework should have flagged that before i've then recognized that once i'm on board because because that potentially causes me a big problem that might have been avoidable beforehand so that's always the balance for me how do i work out who do i want on board before I'm actually the captain, I'm in that environment where suddenly some of them may be causing issues and make a lot more work? Or is that just a responsibility you take on? And I appreciate it's never going to be perfect, but you might have bigger battles in some environments than others.
0: Again, Shackleton had challenging, challenging crewmates, um, but it's how you meet those challenges. And that's where your, your consistency of leadership, and this is the way we do things around here, he would talk. He would talk to that. You know, they, these are the behaviours I will accept, and these are the ones that I won't. And in, you know, and in, 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 in not enforcing them, but uh, re- living them, living them yourself as well as in others. Uh, you know, the, the the team then start to start to gel and bond around it because it's the way we do things around here.
1: Nice. I like that. Great answer. I'm going to throw this one open to everybody. Do we make too much of leadership? And by that, I mean, I hear a lot of talk about leadership groups and, you know, um, a captain and then some vice captains or some kind of playing area leaders and all this type of stuff. Are we putting lots of things in the way of people's aspiration to be leaders because they don't think they are at the level of someone that's already been appointed one of those? Or are we making that process too convoluted where actually we want everybody to, to Demonstrates some form of leadership, however, that might be personal to them. So, within those kind of team environments, coaches and players, do we do we maybe overcomplicate it? Should we try and slim that down and make it a little bit more straightforward for people?
3: Phil, I'm happy to jump in uh, to start with. Um, I think it's a combination of um, Shackleton's theory of getting to know people um, and each other, getting to know each other as well as a group. Um, and sometimes uh, the group will uh, evolve and could potentially decide whether it needs uh, a mid of, mid layer of people to act as a leadership group or simply have two or three individuals who will represent the group, um, but the group will take collective responsibility. So um, I guess it's going back to Dusty's point of do we, do we let group well, you know, do we let people uh, give them enough time to look at what they do how they do it how they organize themselves but sometimes the the most influential people actually very may say very little but on the occasion that they do that's the most powerful statement but you may not naturally pick them in the leadership group if that makes sense
1: yeah
2: absolutely yeah, yeah I think um, some of the mistakes I've made when coaching is that I've probably tried to move people into leadership positions without necessarily consulting with them enough. And the way I would describe it, there are a number of people that are quite happy to be quiet leaders. You know, they don't need the title. They don't need the platform. They'll, they'll do it under the radar and in the shadows a little bit. And I, I guess learning I would take is that you've got to treat everybody as an individual, but give everybody, or presume that everybody can step up in leading, can lead in their own way if you create the right circumstances for them you know there will always be people who are quite happy to you know to be at the front and make the decisions and lead the charge but there'll be other people who are quite happy to be on on the fringes and lead in different ways and it it may be a quiet word to a teammate it, it may be an action that they perform uh, it may be an idea that they're just going to a team meeting once in a, every couple of weeks but you know that is their contribution i guess the trick for coaching is to try and you know, capture those and make sure that everybody else appreciates it as maybe as much as you do as well. So you're creating that shared leadership approach and I think.
1: Spot on. That Yeah, I'd, I'd definitely agree with that. No, really strong. Um Lawney, John, any other
0: questions for Dusty?
2: Yeah, Dusty, just um were there any mistakes that he made in terms of his, his journey through leadership,
0: do you think? Um. Not, not that the, the book references per se. Um, so, n- not, not that I can see, because it's been written in about him and it is in yeah. his journey. So it is about. Um, but I mean, if you ask about sort of from experience, that learning that learning through failure is really important. And and I think knowing what I know of Shackleton, he certainly had some failures along the way. And so which yeah. made him a stronger more focused person but actual leadership is there's not much in there around mistakes on leadership but clearly you'd have to practice leadership hasn't he you know uh, yeah,
2: practice yeah. expeditions practice leading expeditions yeah yeah 100
1: yeah, dusty how do you go about framing mistakes and failure within your role and within the environments in which you work now is I, i'm definitely a big believer in that we don't i don't think we talk about them enough and i don't think we necessarily foster environments where they're accepted as part of that process. There still seems to be the, I've made a mistake. Yeah, I'll probably learn from it myself, but I'm not necessarily going to share that and and be open and honest about it. I think that that comes across in a lot of narratives we see in sport, but just interested in how that looks for you guys and whether you kind of actively promote that or whether it's just kind of innate or, or how it, how it kind of pans out.
0: So I can only talk to the, the, the people that I work with, and support and we will we will consistently have conversations of reflective practice and i will consistently be asking them questions around unintended consequences of actions that have taken and in what you know what is your and we talk about the statement of intent what's the intention behind the decision you're making and then what are the unintended consequences of making that decision we explore some of that so it's almost like we're pre-learning the mistakes we're thinking about those. I mean, you know, like any plan is to survive first contact with the enemy, as they say. So what you try and do is have at least uh, a, a balanced conversation around the possibilities, the what ifs, the what if, what if this happened, what if that happened. So we'll explore that. Um, but when mistakes are made with the people that I'm working with, we, we, we'll We'll share them and have that conversation. And I would be seen as a safe space for that conversation. So I wouldn't betray any confidences or anything along those lines, of course.
1: How do you find that with those individuals? Is that just an individual thing? Some are far more comfortable opening up? Or is that something you kind of have to, for some, you might have to draw out quite, it's quite hard work to draw that information out.
0: So it's it's interesting because because the organisation have put us together, which isn't how I would normally choose to work. But of course, it's a job of work. Um, so I'm very much driven by building the relationship with the individual, and you know, me, you know, uh, you, you can only go at the speed of trust. Any teamwork in any is you go at the speed of trust until you until you've gained trust. You know, you you you, you wait you, you're waiting for that moment. But then once they gain confidence and trust in you as a person, that for, in me, then. Um, that's the safe space for them
1: slightly conscious of time but I'm I am going to ask anyway how do you judge when someone trusts you do you do you you measure that on a scale do you just look for um, how much they might open up more like how does how does that look for you
0: it's it's a sense and it's the the breadth and depth of the conversation uh, and then the the follow-up the follow-up on top of that if you like so, so a lot of my initial relationships in any in any space, mentoring space, a lot of my initial relationships are quite stop, start, stop, start until you get to that point of trust, and then they become consistent.
1: Nice, great stuff. Thank you very much. Wonderful, uh, John. We will come to you. What uh, I know, we talked about this earlier in the week, so I'm uh, I'm excited for this one. What were you looking at?
3: Uh, I've been looking at uh, Sapiens, which is a book that was written by. Um, Yuval well Noah Harari, who's a professor of history at uh, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Uh, it was written way back in uh, 2011, um, and it's had some pretty good reviews from people such as uh, Bill Gates and Barack Obama, who um, have found his work interesting. The key bit when uh, reading it is also to bear in mind that it's his view, uh, basically, of how we Weir's uh, sapiens have managed to uh, take over the planet, basically. And we've been on the planet for he he identifies that uh, we've been on the planet for 300,000 years, uh, but the significant periods have happened in the the last 70,000 years, uh, 12,000 years, and 500 years through three different revolutions, which are the cognitive revolution, the agricultural revolution, and uh, where we are now at the moment, the scientific revolution. Um, You know, and for me, Whilst I know my history of my own uh, background and everything else, it was really interesting his perspective of the potential history for seven billion people that are currently on this planet um, and where we've evolved from, um, how we uh, as sapiens uh, managed to survive longer than the Neanderthal race and people like that. Um, the cognitive revolution allowed us to connect with groups of up to 500 people where the the neanderthals only managed to do it with 50 Uh, during the cognitive period we created language um, and that raised my awareness to how important language became as a narrative to support uh, communication not just within one group but potentially across different groups the agricultural um, revolution was really interesting because that's the first time in our history of sapiens where we stopped foraging and hunting and just wandering around the world as we had done and actually started to establish this is my land this is your land and subsequently based on that we then started potentially increasing the potential of conflict because we now own things we've now got um that to contend with we invented uh, writing uh, and again it was really interesting that writing was born out of um knowing how much grain the sumerians had so it wasn't anything other than uh, being able to say we've got so many thousand tons of uh, grain um again during this period because of the agricultural system we then ended up creating a whole hierarchical system um and then where we are now with the scientific phase is where um harari looks at our evolution of processes and systems and everything else has continued but potentially as sapiens our dna uh, with with the exception of coronavirus currently isn't evolving it's not changing massively um but we are creating more and more um ability to live longer so whereas um 70 years Previous in history, we may have been a long time, 70 years of age now is a a norm to reach that as a lifespan. Um, So again, he's suggesting that in the future that lifespan could be extended even further. Um, What does that look like? Uh, And again, from reading the book, he's now set up a foundation uh, called Sapienship, uh, which advocates a global responsibility through its uh, mission to... Uh, Clarify the global conversation to focus attention on the most important challenges and support the quest for solutions, Uh, which is probably what we've done as um, sapiens all our life. We've been really creative with lots of things. You know, narratives become important to support ideologies. Um, Even when currencies aren't available, we will create currencies. So, um, from my own experience and the environment I worked in, money wasn't allowed, but the currency was cigarettes and Mars bars. So again, you know, that, that ability for human beings to create things is always there. And, you know, the thing I've looked at is, do I, do I stifle my own creativity? Do I stifle other people's creativity? Um, and again, it's probably made me more aware uh, that I'm just one of 7 billion people on a planet. And um, probably don't see myself or try not to be anything in, other than just a, a good human being. Uh, and i guess that's where going back to sport i've suddenly looked at you know sport is one of the things that human beings do uh, and rugby is one of the sports that a human being will choose Um, and going back to john's bit uh, around that history of an individual and where they live and that history you know can we bring that history to life in our rugby clubs uh, and create communities so the conversation earlier touring about being brave could at tour now actually include partners, you know, and then you get a bigger community and a bigger feel and an increased value uh, and an increased connection just outside players. It's a whole bigger bit of um, a club culture, club identity. Um, and one of the things it's made me very aware of is thinking about narrative. So one of the things he suggests that ideologies are about narrative and if you're not talking about it then the ideology will disappear so yeah it was a, it's it was a, a fascinating book um and a fascinating concept really phil if i'm honest um certainly uh, opened my eyes up to a lot of things that i didn't know about us as a species
2: yeah john i'm just interested in sort of
3: got a sense that
2: You know, things like commerce, trade, negotiation. Was there a suggestion that they're almost inherited traits now or genetically programmed into us?
3: What he was suggesting as well, John, and it was really interesting, was that they're common themes. So um, whilst you've got communism in Russia years ago, they'd still have a government, there's still trade, there's still commerce taking place. But it may not look like the commerce as it did in uh, America or Britain but it's still commerce, so, um, it, yeah. you know, and the other bit as well is, um, he, he spoke about um, the concept of human rights and that's something that we've invented, so your point around um, embedding it, it, embedding commerce and things like that, that is probably the key driver of the modern world, commerce. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting point and it, it's linked to something Phil said earlier and- I suppose, going back to traditions
2: of the game in terms of a rugby perspective. We've, we've, we've got a rules and regulations book at the RFU that's hundreds of pages long. and I just wonder at what point did we forget that, that two two people, two captains, could shake hands before a game with each other and the referee and agree the playing conditions and let's just get on with it. Um,
3: it's there, isn't it? If we allow it to emerge, it's there, isn't it? Yeah, and that's, that's the thing I really took from the book. Um, you know revisiting where we've come from as a species now we've evolved um, and a lot of it was never written down it's it's you know we are social um a social species we want to be with people we want to connect with people and that's probably why we created this thing called language
1: just on that john do you think talking about narratives and storytelling do you think that's something we could do better or spend more time on in terms of a coach development space
3: i i go back to john's point around the the clubs and the values um you know i'm always interested that um there doesn't seem to be and i can remember growing up um i'm probably going to pubs when i shouldn't have been uh but there was always um one of the old guys with his walking stick sat at the bar and he'd always got a story you know it was whether it was about the local area whether it was about uh where he was working but there was always a story, um, and I just get a feeling that stories are uh, are now only associated with what we're reading books, rather than actually everybody has the facility or the ability to tell a story.
1: I, I find that fascinating because, as you say, they're they are literally everywhere in everyday life. Whether that's a conversation, or it's a book, or it's a movie, or it's a TV show, you know, I, it's just constant. But I also I guess what opened my eyes, I had a really good conversation with um, Dave Sharkey and also Peter Prickett, who's a football coach. And he is actually um, a screenwriter. And And he just took me through how you construct a story and, and you know, who the people would be. And, and there's kind of real distinct, there's, I think there's seven roles that people would play in a story and this type of stuff. And it, it just translates to everything. But I was kind of like, I'm, you know, 36. and why is this the first time I've ever actually discovered that there is a really set process to how all of these stories come about? And I wonder whether maybe that's just I, I didn't go and look for it early enough or or actually, you know, maybe we could spend more time in that space. If we understood that better, would that make us better people for number one? But, but actually, you know, would it make us better coaches in being able to portray and describe those narratives in, in a more effective way?
3: yeah i think phil if i'm honest uh, you know um i've used stories uh to try and um exemplify things Um and it's usually my friend <laughs> um so i've got lots
0: of friends who've got lots of stories yeah, it's, it's a great way for people to emotionally connect as well isn't it and and to, to emotionally connect with the development opportunity that you afford and so if you can connect through telling a story about your friend that that's really helpful and so um i I guess the rfu or you know we we looked at communities of practice for a while and, and i and i felt that they were a really good place for coach development to take place a good space, as long as it's safe, everyone feels safe in it, because it's the learning from each other that, that is really, really important. And and it was, and it would have been through telling the telling of those stories. Are we going to be moving back to those communities of practice, John? Do you think?
2: Yeah, we'd like to do that, especially now the what technology. I think a lot of people have learned that te- technology can help you do that. It probably won't ever replace. No, it'll complement. Sat around like we are tonight. Um, so it complements that, doesn't it? But it's certainly another way of
1: doing it, definitely. Do you think COVID has just sped up that process? It, it, it's not like no one knew technology was there to have conversations, but maybe we, as you said, John, we we were being slightly more traditional and then everyone's hand has been forced. And, you know, you go peak lockdown, it was everywhere, wasn't it? Content just, I mean, people were doing six, seven, eight hours a day on on webinars just talking about sport and and learning stuff so it's i appreciate it's never going to stay like that in 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 terms of that intensity but did that maybe demonstrate there's more of an appetite for it than people thought or is it just been harnessed in a different way
2: yeah i think i think from a from a rugby perspective and specifically from an rfu perspective um you know you guys know how the game is if you like governed and, and run and um it, it's exposed everybody involved in that process to, to these types of ways of communicating so it's taken away some of the perhaps some of the fear of, of using it and people have been able to see actually it, it does work um so i th- I, th- I think that's that's been a real positive step which has made pe- made people that they need to be more accepting of it and yes it doesn't you know it does come with its flaws you know and everything but actually you need to get in your car and drive four hours for a one-hour meeting with somebody that you've got a very strong relationship anyway when you can do something like this. So, um, so I, think, I think it will accelerate things, Phil, definitely, yeah. Um, and I think the challenge, probably the challenge for maybe all of us on this call is to keep pace with, you know, with, with what will follow because I'm sure the tech companies are now going to start to think, right, what's our next way of utilising this technology? But yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. If it brings people together um and allows people to connect, yeah, more more the merrier, I right,
1: say. Love it. Out of interest, what if you were gonna pick one piece of content, webinar, podcast, whatever it was, from that kind of peak lockdown period, what what was your kind of favorite bit?
2: I'll go for me and it, it sounds really selfish. Um, um we had Stuart Lancaster do the do the two events and you know I've known Stuart for a long time, but um for me, that was just a coach who was completely confident and comfortable in his, in his, if you like, in his craft. You know, he he knew exactly what he was talking about. Um, he was assured. He knew the detail. He was able to articulate it to a range of different people. So I think everybody took something from it. Um, I just thought it was a lesson in in coach development, really. Um, so that was a real highlight for me, and I'm I'm not I'm not ashamed to say it. I've I've got it on my desktop and I watch it every
1: now and then. You know? I think it's, I, I, re- I revisit it. So it was wonderful. I agree.
3: Yeah, definitely one of the best, best ones I saw. Um, for me, Phil, I, was, I had the opportunity to join a, uh, a webinar down in New Zealand uh, that cost me the grand sum of £3.50. Um, but it had um, Graham Henry on, who shared his story uh, of one of his darkest moments in his coaching career and what he did and how he got through it. So for me, um, that was pretty powerful in terms of him returning back to uh, his roots to find himself again, getting involved with uh, exercise on a daily basis uh, to help him with his peace of mind and
0: then uh, getting back on the horse. So, yeah, that was that was a powerful thing.
1: Dusty, what about you?
0: Yeah, I don't have one in particular, to be honest. I I've, I've quite enjoyed the fact that there has been a lot of really high quality accessible content being shared by, by the NGBs and, um, and then being part of a conversation afterwards where people are making sense of that learning for themselves and having those conversations with that. So, so really I think w- w- what it's done for me is it's, it's set us free down a, ro- down a route of development now which I think will stick and be long lasting it won't replace the feet on the green stuff, coaching and coach development work, but as John says quite eloquently, it complements complements the, the the development. So that's what that's what I've really enjoyed about the lockdown, and the opportunities to have conversations like this and others.
1: Love it. Segues quite nicely, and I've I've probably stitched all of you guys up there because that wasn't in the plan to ask you that. But um, in terms of other content, you would recommend that's either coming up or potentially people may have missed what uh, what would you guys be uh, be recommending to anyone that's listening
2: so i um i'm catching up on the sports the sports psych show with dan abrahams which i, I know you've discussed before um um and i've just been listening to the stuart wilkinson one um so i don't know much about stuart but you know i, I loved his i love the podcast he's um going to get into some of his stuff i think that's quite interesting quite exciting so yeah, that's, that's where I'm going next.
1: Love it. I listened to that one in the car yesterday, thought it was really good. Just some of the stories were, were awesome. I think just that that balance of bringing academia to life within those stories I, th- I thought was awesome because I think you can talk about academia in abstract concepts and all this type of stuff, but actually saying, well, you know, when we're talking about a, a bio-social, uh, psych-social approach, this is what it looks like when you're delivering it. I, I absolutely love that. It was class, yeah.
3: Uh, Phil, I'm still into the, still in the books. Um, I've read uh, Rudger Bregman's um, Human Kind of Hopeful History, um, and he he takes the view of um, trying to explain to people that human beings are good people, we are good as a species, and we do lots of good things, and we're often not betrayed in that way. So he gives some great examples in that book. Uh, and the book I'm currently in is um, Yuval Noah Rari's second one, which is Homo Deus, which is looking at what would, could we potentially look like in the future.
1: Have you got to the end? Any any insight?
3: AI <laughs> is up there in uh, there. It, it's featuring quite high at the minute, Phil. Definitely
1: okay. interesting. Okay, <laughs> Dusty, what about you?
0: Uh, nowhere as deep as that. You'll be pleased to know. Um, the uh, high performance podcast. Uh, I've just stumbled across that one. It's Jake Humphreys' one. Um, so uh, the one I listened to on the way down here. I'm currently in the middle of Dartmoor at Princetown, next to the prison, John. Just to keep you interested, um, <laughs> Baroness uh, Michelle Moan and her story. I, I started to listen to that, and I, I thought, crikey, if we if we could just learn something from this about tenacity and drive and passion for a goal that you want to achieve that's the podcast to listen to so i'd highly recommend that one fascinating story
1: love that i'm in the car again tomorrow so i will put that at the top of my list superb uh gents thank you very much that uh that is us so um I will round up the roundup, but uh, absolutely brilliant to have you on. Thank you very much for giving up your time. We hope you found it useful. Thank you to my three guests for their brilliant insights. Links to all the content discussed are available in the podcast blurb. Please subscribe, like, and share. Like, Thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well.